0: Hi, I'm Sienna. Hi, I'm Christina. And you're listening to Behind the Curtains podcast, a podcast brought to you by English Touring Theatre. Join us as we chat to some amazing
1: creatives and movers and shakers in the world of theatre off the stage.
0: From directors to producers to choreographers, production managers, writers, and dialect coaches, we're spotlighting the folks that are the backbone of the industry. We'll be reflecting
1: on life and work in a pandemic and thinking ahead to what the future might hold in these uncertain times. Our guests will also tell you their stories and share their career journeys, each unique
0: to them. In this episode, we are thrilled to be joined by production manager, Alicia Lavinier and sound designer, Munatida Chinyanga. Hi folks.
1: Hello, welcome. Hi.
2: Hello, hello, hello.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Really, super, yeah, we're super excited. Um, So we have two extremely talented ladies with us today. It's always exciting when we have women, just because you know the theatre and the world in general is heavily male dominated. So we've got two very, you know, powerful and really exciting women. So I'm going to start off by talking to um, Alicia. Following a string of accomplishments at Shakespeare's Globe, The Royal Court and The Young Vic, Alicia has recently joined Mountview Academy as their resident production manager and is excited about working with the next generation of theatre professionals at one of the UK's most inclusive drama schools. Alicia is currently developing a production management mentorship scheme with ETT, which is extremely exciting, to provide an accessible opportunity for people of colour. And um, uh, Minatida uh, is a multidisciplinary artist creating work through direction and sound design. Her practice explores challenging form by restructuring and experimenting with text, redefining performance space, and challenging the presence and role of the audience. Minatida has an MA in Theatre Arts, majoring in multidisciplinary practices, international collaborations, and sonic art. Really cool. Really cool. <laughs> Welcome both. Melatida, you work in sound. You are a sound designer. And Alicia, you are a production manager. Indeed. Um, Both roles are very um, crucial in the world of theatre. And I just wanted you to give the audience just some more information about your roles, what it intakes, um, and just kind of like what got you guys into those roles as well.
3: Uh, So my role as production manager kind of involves overseeing the entire production process I suppose um and all of the technical elements so that's across um lighting sound costume stage management um set construction all of that um and and kind of making sure that the show goes up on time and within budget um I'm also responsible for everyone's health and safety which is obviously the most thrilling part of my job um but you know very important uh and I guess I got into it in kind of a Wow, I suppose roundabout way, not not your kind of traditional way, I guess. Um, because I didn't go to drama school, um, I did go to university though. I studied drama and theatre studies at Kent, um, and then in my final year, did a masters in contemporary performance practice, um, and during that year was the first time I kind of even heard the words production manager. Um, we had to basically make a like amateur theatre company, um, and and a devised show from you know kind of cradle to grave uh and I took on the role as production manager not really knowing what it meant but I really liked that it sounded like I could boss everybody around so I was like yep I'll be that one um and obviously then coming into the industry realized it was um not actually really production management it was probably more producing um so yeah that was a bit confusing but anyway I kind of worked in retail for a bit and then got a job at the Globe eventually um in their front of house department i was looking after the volunteer stewards um and then saw a traineeship come up at the royal court which was in their production department um and i got that job so i was there for a year um working closely with the production manager and the company manager there um fell in love with production management and then got the job as um production manager of the studios at the young vic So that's my story, I guess.
1: (laughs) Love that. I was going to ask you, just following on from that, what a typical, for a production manager, because years ago I did a a course when I was about 18 years old, which was on production management. And it was just going to different theatres and kind of understanding how it works. And I remember the only thing that I can remember from such a long time ago was I remember making a lot of props. Um, So I never really understood a lot about production management. And I know there's, you know, there's different roles in production management. What does a typical day um, in your role look like?
3: Um, Gosh, it really varies, um, which I guess is one of the reasons I love my job. um, Because it, yeah, it really does vary. I think uh, when I'm in a production period, so for example, at the moment, um, we've just finished a week of fit up and we're going into tech. So at the moment, my day looks like um, getting the team together in the morning, delivering a toolbox talk and making sure everybody's kind of aware of the plan of the day. Um, and then during this period, I mostly need to kind of step away from all the action because I'm the person that needs to have eyes sort of everywhere. Um, So I can't get too bogged down in in one particular thing. You know, I can't go run off and make a prop, for example, because then I can't see what the lighting department are doing. Um, So it's kind of just, yeah, taking a step back, I guess, and and making sure everything's running really smoothly and that people aren't falling off ladders um, and that people are wearing the correct, you know, PPE and all of that stuff, especially now with COVID. It's like a whole other um, minefield, but... I won't go into that just yet. Because
1: um. <laughs> you did mention about COVID. So um, how would you say that, you know, how has things changed? How has your work changed or the directions that you have, all the things you have to do change since COVID has taken its residence
3: um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in our lives? Yeah, I guess, I guess in um, a kind of logistical sense, it has meant that, um we've had to think of an additional strand of health and safety um normally I've got my kind of you know basic health and safety things that I that I check off that don't really change that much from show to show um but at the moment we're you know as everyone has been saying for the past six months it's unprecedented nobody nobody knows how to work in these conditions and particularly in our industry because it has completely shut down for the past six months so as people are just starting to go back and um you know i'm at a drama school so obviously um we we've had to start kind of straight away um just getting straight into it without much guidance um in terms of production there's lots of guidance in terms of keeping students safe but um, yeah basically we have to just clean a whole lot more than we ever used to (laughs) Um, trying to keep departments separate during a fit up is really hard because with time constraints usually you would try and get as many people working on top of each other as possible to get the job done and get the show up but at the moment we're trying to keep you know, the number of people on stage at any one time at a minimum, yeah. um just to try and avoid um, any transference. And, you know, touch points on set uh, are obviously really difficult. The cast want to run around and roll on the ground and, you know, do cartwheels mm. and aren't allowed to. Like, it's it's a whole lot of no. I'm having to deliver yeah. a whole lot more no's to people, which is really sad. Um but you know, it's it's for the sake of, of people's health. So
2: yeah, that's that comes
3: top. Is.
1: Completely. And um Tida, I guess the same question for you would be if you could just like explain exactly what your role intakes, um and what a typical day looks like for you as a sound designer
2: on an essential, basic level, foundations. I'm a sound designer and that means I am responsible for all the sounds that happens on stage, whether that's sound effects, you know, the kind of doors closing, doors opening, our (laughs) favourite. Or (laughs) next level, transition music, you know, getting that music in between scenes or more like atmospherical, so creating a vibe, a tone, texture, Whatever that may be through sound. Um, so, that that's what a sound designer that's, that's what I attempt to do on some basis. And how I got there. So, basically, long story short, I actually wanted to be a cardiologist. And someone accidentally put me into a theatre arts class instead of further maths. Um, I went to this class thinking, you know what? I'm going to tell my tutor I can't be here. This is not possible. Um, But I wanted to say to her face because I'm not, I didn't like emails. I wanted to explain myself. It wasn't my fault. Yeah. So I went there and I stayed for the host session instead of just going up to her at the beginning. Um, And she came up to me at the end and she was like, oh, how is it? Anything you want to discuss? And I was like, nah, that was great. That was great. All good for me. I'll see you next week. (laughs) Um, and I just continued going and I didn't know, like you were saying, like, I didn't know there was sound. I didn't know there was lighting. I didn't know. I didn't, I don't even think I knew what directing was as well either. Um, then I went to uni, I went to Middlesex University and they do a contemporary performance practice, um, course called theatre arts. And that just looks at contemporary performance practices and how, you know, you can make work. Besides being an actor on stage and what that means and blah, 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 blah. And they forced me to do design there as well. I was like, great. Um, and also, I wanted to be an actor this time, which was, again, I don't understand why. Looking back <laughs> and I'm like, geez, what, what, a wa- what a waste of my time. Um, so I did costume. You have to have too much patience for that. Lighting was a bit too much maths. I love sound. I love music. um, Studied dance for a while as well before. So I was like, this is kind of, this is my world. And I I really like listening. I like hearing. I like sharing whatever that may be sounds. So I continued in that route. And um, here I am. Some of the projects I lead as a kind of sound designer slash director are a bit more kind of dreaming up concepts, experimenting, looking at um, new technology and equipment and how we can kind of use those within the sound world. But on like a regular, pro- proper theatre kind of um, day, it's going into rehearsals, um, a whole lot of sitting and watching and nodding, um, taking notes, uh, writing down any sounds, any kind of commentary, around the sonic landscape anyone mentions and adding it to my list uh but it depends on what part of the process is so if it's early on in the process a lot of that stuff when we're getting closer to structure it's more okay I'm sourcing this I found this do you want to listen to this to the director also depends on what room you're in sometimes I can play some stuff out loud and it's not as distracting um other times we have to wait a bit longer until the actors kind of know what they're doing in the space um so yeah yeah I think I think that's basically what I do. Nice and
1: uh, you, listen, it's a lot of stuff that you have to do. To be honest, I have witnessed and watched so many um, like sound desi- like design- designers in their little section. They've got that big board <laughs> around. <them>. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah. So when they have that board around them, I know do not disturb because it's like a complete restraint of like you cannot go near them. Um, so I've seen that quite a lot. I was going to ask you again, similar to. Um, what i asked alicia in regards to covid so obviously your work your typical work um situation will change and Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how has um the pandemic changed how your typical work a day would be as a sound designer
2: i think the biggest thing is there's a whole... Again, it depends on the production and how, where they want you to work. So on the jobs in which I'm working physically in person, it's, again, minding your distance, minding your space. But again, as a sound designer before, you're kind of in your corner. So <laughs> <laughs> not that much of a difference. Um, uh, Zoom, so making sure you're kind of used to that technology and how you can share um, sound through Zoom, how you can kind of explain your process through zoom how that works it's harder i feel because my inspirations like because again also i do a lot of my work allows me to travel a lot so covid has kind of you know stop that which meant that i'm all the inspirations and kind of visuals and sounds and qualities and textures things that that i kind of soak in um when i'm walking and living my life uh are not there anymore, so there was a time period of time when I was like oh, i I just don't know I don't know how i'm gonna do this i don't know if this makes sense, or there was a time when it was really hard to access the creativity it's not like it wasn't there, but getting there was a bit harder. so I think covid mentally that's what it's kind of done um physically, not that much of a difference, just making sure keep your distance cleaner, clean your spaces. This weekend, I'll be doing some headphone stuff. So that may be a challenge in terms of like cleaning equipment. I don't know headphone what stuff. that will look like. What does that mean? Um, so the production I am currently working on are using silent disco headsets. <laughs> nice. The classic. Um, right. Classic. So I don't know Don't know how that... I've, this is the first headphone kind of show I've done post-COVID. So I'm going to see oh. what terms and conditions apply and regulations and all that stuff. Um, new experiences something. for all of us yeah. exactly that's exactly pretty cool and actually. New you know what?
1: how does how would it work do you have to so will you everything still remains the same so you continue doing your so your design
2: um, yeah, sounds for it it is a lot of creating so it's similar process it's just the kind of equipment and mechanisms we use to send information out, which i'm really interested in that's another thing as a sound designer, so I mm-hmm. will never say like with chess that I am a composer <laughs> Because then expectations get really high. <laughs> but as a sound designer, I can, like, compose and then nobody expects me to be good. Yeah, it's um, like a
3: bonus, but what I'm, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Like,
2: ooh. But what I'm really interested in is the way in which sound reaches people. So I think that's why my fascination with headphones come in. Um, silent disco, you kind of have this individual experience, but also community. You so, said, ooh, the DJ really got you there, Christina. Um, <laughs> so you're sharing an experience with someone else but it's also in individual and it's physical it's present um all because you put this kind of thing on your head so I've, i really love to talk about the tools and technology that create these individual experiences but bring people together at the same time so that's where i kind of my sound world is kind of equipment have you heard of butt kickers
0: no No. what's that who's that so
2: they're like (laughs) these it's not it's not i don't even think it's like something super you know exciting but i always get super excited about it like these kind of small square box thingy that gives off waves and vibrations um and you can stick it onto anywhere and send sound through it. And it just, you know, shakes up the place a bit. It just gives off vibration. So I'll give an example. I did uh, cutting it at the Royal Exchange Manchester mm. and we attached it to the kind of metal wall pole thingies so that, you know, when we had, deaf audiences they could sit there and kind of wow. hold on to it and it gives off these vibration sensations it just creates it makes sound more tactical that's the thing so Ooh, it like kind that. of brings it alive it gives it a bit more of a presence oh my god. because um, in this world i mean i could i'm gonna stop talking in a second but in this world oh, really? you know sound designers there's a hierarchy in the rehearsal room we all mm. know this <laughs> and um where are you lot at <laughs> you know somewhere, somewhere somewhere quite low i would say And I feel like there are times in which because we play to this hierarchy and because, you know, text and hearing lines and language is so important um, in in the theatre world that sound can be distracting. That's the big thing I hear. But I'm like, dude, hold up, hold up, hold up. When we live our daily lives, our basic lives, like yesterday I was in the park with a photographer and there were kids screaming all around the place. I couldn't turn around and go, "Okay, kids, you are now distracting. Could you turn your volume down? This is, you know, in real life, sound is kind of difficult. And so is there a way in which we can make sound difficult within the theatre space and audience, you know, actively listen to what's happening on stage, as opposed to just giving them... I know the arguments for and against it, you know, but that's why I kind of... Sometimes I feel disrespected when I hear that. You know, could you turn that down? I'm like, oh, I should turn my work down. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll just it's, sit over here.
1: This is the thing, isn't it? It's kind of... Um, it's for. It's difficult when there is these kind of hierarchies, I think. Mm. I, think it's, uh, I think everyone in theatre is equal because art is art and we're all trying to at the end of the day put on a production whether you are you know an actor director working front of house whatever it is that you're doing you've got to come together for it to work um and you know it kind of stems off from the next question i'm going to ask you both which is um a bit about your role so tida just um in regards to your role as we know it is a heavily male dominated um role in sound design and it's also very white male um dominated so just we just want to find out basically what challenges have you faced or if you've faced any or not faced any um being a sound designer and being a black woman as a sound designer in the industry
2: i think this was a really like big issue at the beginning um where and sometimes it's not i don't know how to put this together it's going into a room and then realizing that maybe, and there's so many levels to it. Like I just mentioned the hierarchy thing. So I'm in a room, my work is kind of not being valued. And then I'm thinking, is it because of the designer hierarchy? Is it because I am a woman? Is it because I am black? Or is it because of a combination of all the three together? So at the beginning, there was a lot of struggle and str- struggle and stress um, in kind of delivering designs, you know, the, nervous, the nerves, the anxiety. Um, and, I, th- you know, because I'm also a director, so I was like, I'm good at reading people. And sometimes it just felt like there was something off or anything I did was kind of wrong, but there wasn't, an explanation as to how and why. And then, after a while, things slowly start to fall. And you're like, ah, I'm the diversity tick. Okay. So there's, I really didn't have to be doing any of the work, to be honest. Um because you just wanted a doorbell you didn't really want me because of my interest or in or my study in headphone art and how blah, blah 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 you you weren't really interested in that you just wanted a black person in the room for black so and so and so and so and such um so I think that was the first challenge and then you just get the basic stuff that you get you know in um standard everyday life uh a lot of mansplaining um and sometimes you're just a bit tired. So I I remember someone sitting next to me and explaining how you stack something on QLab, and I was like, Oh my god, really? Like I I didn't like I didn't I didn't I don't even have a degree in this thing.
0: Like they didn't take the time to just yeah. be like, Yo, this person's here to do the job. Exactly. And like, let's 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 like not assume exactly because of the way they look that right. they don't know anything.
2: But also, why would you? The assumption is such a massive one, do you it's know what wild. I mean? It's yeah. Exactly, it's wild. It's like, why would you think I don't know how to do this? How do you think I got into the room? You know, these kind of things. So, I think those are the two biggest things I struggle with. I
1: guess with, um, you know, production management, again, I mean, for a long time, it's been heavily male dominated. I know things are starting to change, and I'm I'm starting to see more women. But it's very rare to see black women um, in your um, field. And also, with everything, the project you're doing at the moment with ETT, which is to get, you know, underrepresented people in a stage management, which is a huge thing. I mean, what kind of setbacks have you faced? um, And, just if you could just give us a bit more information about um the project you're doing with e t t because I know that's kind of linked into representation
3: um yeah, I mean as you say it's there's just like no black women really um I know of literally one other black female production manager, like I just literally haven't met one or heard of one or seen one um of course there there are a few but But, you know, with our roles not being very visible in the first place, and then you put on top of that it being a black woman, it's like, literally, where are they? Um, I know one black guy who's a production manager. Um, I know zero black non-binary production managers. Um, So it just goes to show, I guess, how few there are. Like, they're just not, not around. Um, And it means that being such a minority um means that when I do within a minority, when I do step into a room, like Tita was saying, um, I I see the the surprise in some people's eyes when I'm trying to assert my authority or when I introduce myself as the production manager, you know, I'm like five foot four, I am a black woman, like sat in a room with like ten other creatives, and and I'm the one that, you know, says yes or no really confuses people like I can literally see it in their face I can see that they're trying to hide it but um it confuses them um they don't really know how to deal with it and it it does mean that there's um yeah a lot of uh kind of imposter syndrome that comes along with that um because I will get a job um kind of knowing that I got it because I'm a black woman um and I know that there's probably a, a massive, been a massive shift in recruitment, to be honest, because there would have been a time when I wouldn't have got a job because I'm a black woman. And now actually it feels like that is almost reversed. Like people want me to be in their institution or in their um, theater because, you know, it looks good because it it makes them look like they're they're being diverse. You know, they're ticking those boxes in their diversity action plan. Um, And to be honest, that's not to say that I'm not here for it because I 100% will take the job (laughs) if I am offered it, do you know what I mean? And also, if I have to be that person that changes the face of of a theatre or of a drama school, then so be it. I'm happy to be that person and kind of fly the flag and try and be as visible as possible so that the next generation of black production managers who are, you know, young girls can see that actually it's it's possible for them, you know, to be the next one. Um, I am happy to be that person. I know that I was that person at the royal court. I know that I was that person at the Young Vic. Um and it does, it does take a, a kind of strength and honesty, I think, to be able to um accept that as a thing but i'm the kind of person that is going to see an opportunity and run with it you know i'm going to see an open door and i'm going to run as fast as i can through that door and i'm going to keep going rather than looking at it as a handout it's it's hard it's really hard it's challenging
0: basically because i think for me when tida was talking i was a bit like it really basically pisses me off that it's like people won't assume that you're there because of your talent first and foremost because in the, the day f- you know the bottom line is there's very few slash none basically of you know um black women in your roles and then and then on top of it it's kind of like because of that you then have to be the best at what you do Mm -hmm. you have to but people don't see it that way they actually think well we just need the representation so you can probably be subpar mediocre they don't know the black mantra that you gotta be at least what is it twice if not four times better than everybody yeah You know, that's like whatever part, whatever black you are, wherever in the diaspora, wherever in the home countries, wherever you're African, Caribbean, whatever. We all know that mantra that you have to be better than everybody else to even get half as much. And so it really it makes me so upset actually hearing you both talk about that, that actually because of that fact that you're a minority within a minority and sometimes within a minority that you it's not even that people can think, oh, and actually they must be really sick of what they do. And I think I just wanna, I wanna work out, I guess I wanna hear from you both like a bit more cause you touched it already, but how are you navigating that? Cause I guess, how do you navigate that 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 struggle? Like, are there ever moments where you feel you're in the room because you're sick at what you do? Or do you ever feel that like there's a moment where there's a key change? And although it might be like, that is the reality of how to get in the room, that people are you know gonna look at you and be surprised that it's you that's the boss in that space actually, or whatever, is there a moment where you've noticed a key change, a step change and everyone's like, they they're like, oh, okay. And we're we we're, we're talking to you as production manager, we're talking to you as sound designer first and foremost.
3: Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think I definitely experienced that um in my previous role at the Young Vic, for sure. I think I I went there, um it was my first ever role as a production manager and I was terrified. I was so, so scared because, you know, I'd just come from the Royal Court as a trainee, um, in an assistant role and I just was so scared of messing up, you know, classic imposter syndrome. I was like, they're going to realise that I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. But
0: also, is there the burden as well of like, if I mess up, they're going to think all black women are crap at this job. Yeah,
3: she just got the job because she's a black woman. But then I do think that I saw, I did see that change that you're talking about, which I think was probably kind of, um, you know, it was partly me actually just grappling with that imposter syndrome and going, do you know what? Actually, you haven't got time to be scared. Like, let's just crack on. Anything you don't know, you can learn. Like, it's gonna be fine. Um, You know, and that kind of classic, just fake it till you make it. Um, And then actually I did make it and I felt it within myself. I I learned really quickly what the important things are um, about production management and how to assert my authority even if inside I actually wasn't that confident about what I was saying, I learned a way to um, fake it, I guess, Um, and then, you know, go away and find out the answer and then come back with confidence. And I could tell that the people around me um, were receptive of that and and people started taking me seriously and, you know, coming to me and asking me um, questions and things like that, so... And then I just built a really good relationship with everybody that I worked with there. I think it was definitely um, on me though to sort of shed a bit of that fear, Um, which, you know, obviously isn't fair. Like I didn't ask for the imposter syndrome. I'd really rather not have it. Um, But I think in order to succeed, I guess, um, as a black woman, it's, it's something that, we just have to put up with. And there's all the mansplaining that Tida mentioned as well. God, it's just all the time. It's honestly constant. It's so boring. That I don't think will will ever go, probably, which is really depressing. Um but again, I guess it's just it's just learning how to deal with it a little bit, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Tita,
0: what about you?
2: Yeah. And I think it comes from like Alicia was saying, the the confidence and being able to assert yourself, having the confidence within yourself. I think there's so many thoughts going on in my mind right now. So there's like a difference between working because obviously I'm kind of freelance. So I have to, it's project to project, people to people. Um... So you don't really get that kind of, you know, chance to, you don't, there's less of that moment and there's something really massive. There's some of it, it. including, like with, with Alicia, for example, you build over time with the same people. Exactly, exactly. Whereas sometimes I'm just in a situation where I'm like, okay, I can see why I'm here and I understand that you have no interest in this relationship. Cool, I'm just going to finish this and get my money and, <laughs> you know, move on to the next Get my one. bag and go. Because you really, exactly, you just really have to kind of detach yourself to that, especially like me. I, I'm i very much a like people's person. I really want to, you know, connect. I want to understand your practice and I want to be there. But sometimes people, they don't care. They're not there for that. Um, And so I had to kind of step back and do that. There are times, and also there's another conflict in which, some people don't understand what I do. They just need a sound designer. Um, And so when I get in the room, I have to make a choice at some point in the journey, in the process. Am I working this job to kind of give me some sort of, you know, to strengthen my, my practice? Or am I here to quote-unquote, serve, you know, the director, which is a classic one, and it's a hard one. Um, but I think the most important thing is once you're in the room, like, you're in the room, so it's your choice on what you're going to do and the actions you're going to take um, and the connections you're going to make and blah, 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 blah. Like, the stuff, I think one of the biggest things is... I, I think there was this one time when I this, I was assisting on something... Like really early in in the day in the stage, and I could tell that maybe the director wasn't really didn't really need me that much. So I spent a lot of time with the sound designer instead, you know, and I <laughs> became kind of like a Allegiance. sound assistant in that sense. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's where my learning came from, and that's where my connection came from, and that's when I, you know, most of my jobs have come from that connection, that network. So it's kind of you know negotiating that when you're in the room, like ah oh, I'm here. These are the challenges. What what good can I get out of this? What can I do? And there's been moments where, like the the work I do in Rome, are oh, so liberating because they just they're there for you. They're like I'm here. This is we want you here as opposed to, and we want your practice. Um, so you feel that you feel I feel that change when I like go and Working work there. Working in Rome. Woo! Mm. That those kind of freedoms. Oh. <laughs> not not year. No, sure, Not no. <laughs> um, That sounds like a
1: joke. <laughs>
2: yeah Mm. yeah and you feel it and you feel so empowered and then you come back here and I'm
0: like that's really surprising though because there's definitely a stereotype about like i like European countries right and like now you know how it is for black folks so that's really interesting Mm. and surprising yeah and like
1: I guess kind of Tidic and Alicia coming from your comp just from that kind of answer with theatre itself as we know um it it's forever changing and they are and I've seen so many theatres that are trying to you know take a step forward in being more inclusive but as theatre in as a whole in the UK do you think that theatre is ready to be more inclusive and um, do you think that they're ready to take on stories that represent our community so rather than the, t- the, t- the typical slave story I'm talking about stories that really represent us as black people, are they ready for these changes to happen? I don't think
3: they are. I think it it feels like um, we're moving in the right direction and we have been over the past, I don't know, 50 years or whatever, since we've started seeing more, you know, ethnic diversity on stage um, because it always starts on stage. You know, it's so easy to be performative. I think for theatres to diversify their casts, but then it means that you know, behind the scenes, the writers, the directors, the pe- the producers, the people that are that are um, making decisions and and you know that have the effect of who is the cast, who's the next um, group of of people that we're going to have in this workforce. They're the people that are really making they need to be making the change. And I think that that is the area that is moving so slowly. Um, it's insane when you look at, you know, the the statistics of the amount of people that identify as black or Asian um, in theatres across the country. Um, it's just, it's wild. Um, But we know that they are out there. We know so many creatives that look like us. So it's like, why are you not hiring them? You know, it's so easy for them to have these excuses that we're not out there, but actually, are they even looking? Are they actually just shutting their eyes? And that's why they can't see us because we are definitely here. Um, I think that in terms of the stories that are being told, um, I'm hesitant to say that they're ready uh, simply based on what happened when the young Vic did Fairview um, last year last year this year I think it was the beginning of this year um, which was such an incredible play it was so so amazing that they programmed that um, and yet there was this this really kind of pivotal thing that happens at the end of Um, the show that I actually don't think anyone is ever allowed to talk about. So I'm not going to reveal what happens. (laughs) Oh, really? but but basically it invites um, the white people in the audience to, I suppose, hold a mirror up to themselves and they, they have to deal with who they are outside of that theater. Um, And so you literally have this tangible evidence of how white audiences are reacting to the show so we'd see show reports every day and see that they they were you know they were hesitant to do the thing that was being asked of them um they were reacting in ways that meant that they they were basically saying I'm not a racist though I might be white but I'm not a racist I don't need to do that thing that's being asked of me um so it feels like Anyway, I think I'm rambling, but basically, no, no. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they're ready. Um, I have several tales that will um, <laughs> evidence that. Um, yeah, I don't think they are, but I feel like I'm here to like, you know, try and move mm. the process on a little bit. Tita,
1: what about you? I mean, do you think that theatre is ready?
2: I agree with uh, Alicia. I don't think they're ready. I think they're ready to pretend. They're always ready to pretend. But um, I don't think they're ready. And also for me, yeah, it's not even like about just because you, uh, Christina, you mentioned oh, it's like either slave stories mm. or you know, are they ready for just you know stories about our lives? Why can't they just be a show about general everyday but black people perspective? Do you know what I mean? Like, or we it doesn't just have, have to be, to be black. Be, yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be like a massive kind of. And this was the story of how a black woman in a councillor, you know what I mean? Like you know, <laughs> Some of us are just living life, you know, we, we, we're not being <laughs> stabbed, do you know what I mean?
0: But you know what, it's because our existence, this is the thing, and I think you're touching on this conversation that comes up often about like black mediocrity for starters and the fact that it's not everyday excellence. Some people just want to exist and that's yeah. also fine because everybody else, white people can just exist. And I think the other thing around like, again, not everyone wants to be an activist, not everyone wants to have their bodies politicized but what i would say in response to that is it's unfortunate that we don't get a choice you get a choice if you're gonna like step up to it and like confront it for sure but like as long as you live in a society that is white supremacist you will and as long as you are racialized as black and that means something and holds water and holds weight you're politicized Your poli- your life is political unfortunately so i think it's just yeah that's just a, a fact I would say mm-hmm, that we just mm-hmm. have to navigate as black people. But I agree. So I think although it should just be that this is a play about a woman and her laundry, there's something that's always gonna add to where it. it's like, oh it's a black woman and, and, and her, her laundry. laundry.
2: The way in which I guess my resistance comes in and my activism comes in is the work I do with students. Um, I spend a lot of time like one of another massive issue that I found is that a lot of people, a lot of you know, uh, black Asian um, students, performers, as art- artists, come from bigger cities, bigger European cities to London because you know this is where the magic happens. This is worth This is where you become someone. Um, and then they get here and they sitting in the audience looking on stage and they can't see themselves, they can't find themselves, they don't have the right accent, they don't have the right body, they don't have the right tones, they don't know how to say certain words. And I was just, you know, there was, a moment where I, there was moments where I was like furious that some of my you know, students that I'm working with really feel that there is no way they could... Go on stage without drum school um, uh, training and all this kind of stuff. So I spend a lot of time creating like exchange pro- programs, in which students from all over different European cities can come together and kind of create work through learning from each other. And in that sense, how do we empower the future generation to then, you know, actively define and redefine themselves as opposed to? Cause, you know, that was a struggle with me. I was coming through. Nobody's programming my work because, you know, it's, it doesn't fit into the, you know, program. It's not making any sense. It's not uh, conventional. So there's no space for me. So how do I then set up that space for myself? Um, and I think that's one of the only ways in which change can kind of begin to go somewhere. Because um, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm tired of fighting with venues now. I'm tired of fighting with theatre. So maybe there's a way in which... I can do something else with artists.
0: Yeah, you spoke about textures of sound and sonic landscapes. And I want to just find out a bit more about how you like approach your work and and how you tend to work with maybe the other roles like a production manager or director, Mm. um, actors, you know, do you feel that sometimes your practice is quite a solo practice or Mm. um, quite collaborative in the way that you're talking about? Just for people who are like, oh, I'm still really intrigued by how this actually works and how one gets influenced and starts creating a sonic
2: landscape so i think again it depends on production and the people in the room on the type of if it's devised or if it's from um scripted but i okay so it's so hard to kind of (laughs) put what i do into words as well so without going through this whole spiel but essentially i'm going to explain what i said to my photographer yesterday um on this residency because trying to understand me and then okay essentially The way in which I make work or what inspires me, blah blah blah, is I want my art or whatever practice to make better human beings. That is like the the concept at the center of it. How do I kind of give people the tools that whatever through whatever experience through watching my show, through listening to um the design, what am I kind of challenge challenging them to do? What tools am I giving to them that then they will take out of the theatre, out of the performance, and apply it to everyday kind of situations?
0: Okay, so Tida and Alicia, um, it's been like a super interesting conversation so far. And again, we've been thinking about like all the problems, particularly with your roles, I think, because they already feel a little bit niche compared to maybe like some other backstage roles, even though they shouldn't be. Um, and so you have like unique challenges. Um, but... Obviously along the way in your careers, there surely have been people that have uplifted you. We'd just like to find out um, who your sung or unsung heroes are basically, um, that you brought along. So Alicia, who did you choose? Tell us a little bit about them and, and hopefully people can go and find out a bit more about them after this conversation. Um, so I
3: chose Stephen Kavuma. Um, he is a, a theatre director, writer, extraordinaire, Um, I actually first met him at the Royal Court when he was um, assisting. He was an assistant director on a show that I was stage managing. Um, And we were kind of just pals. And I didn't really think that much of what was going on. And then all of a sudden I started seeing his name um, popping up everywhere. Um, He started, you know, he was assisting at the national he was going on to direct you know of his own accord he's really doing bits for for us um you know and getting more black people into the arts so amazing well Love done lift up
0: steven's name yeah, thank you
3: awesome.
0: and um tida you're you know just quickly your person who is it that we're trying to lift up in this conversation
2: so my person is the executive assistant to the artistic director of the young vic and her name is olivia nwabali And I just feel like in terms of the things I learned from her, from just watching the way in which she communicates and interacts with people and sits within spaces and manages someone's time, from articulation to physical presence, like it only can be learned from being, I guess, that person that has to manage so many um, voices for someone, for a building, for a venue. And I was like, okay this to be a human like this again remember what i said you know i want to make art that makes humans better so to have someone like this who is essentially you know an administrative artist in a sense um is very important and also it shows that i don't know there are these roles exist for anyone you know who's black and may not want to be on stage you know as I say but you can also be an artist off stage it's not you know there is no doubt she's an artist and she is supporting the facilitation of whatever vision is happening at that venue at that space so that is why I've chosen Olivia
1: and just to kind of like finalize what can we expect from you guys next and um, where can we find your work
2: um, I've got. I mean, the next exciting thing that's happening in my life, hopefully, fingers crossed, hashtag COVID yeah. in palma <laughs> So, next year, April, I'm doing, I have been selected as the international um artist, blah blah blah, and I'm going to take over the city of Parma in Italy. Woo, and it's going to wow. be the whole city, girl, <laughs> massive sound installation. Don't know oh, how it's going to be wait. achieved, but
0: take me with you. I'm coming, yeah, yeah. come yeah. through right there,
2: yes. What about
0: you, Alicia? What are you up to, I guess, settling in at work and stuff like that? But where can we find you in your work?
3: Um, Yeah, I'm settling in at Mountview. We've got lots of shows coming up um, and they will be available to watch online. Um, So if anyone was interested, they can go on the Mountview website and they can sign up to um, log in to watch the students' productions for this season Um, because we don't have any audiences in real life, unfortunately. Um, But at least we're making the work. Um, I'm also as I mentioned building this mentorship with ETT so um, for any of you listening that are budding uh, production managers of the future um, and black or Asian or ethnically diverse then uh, look out for more information about that um, hopefully in the new year um, and you can apply and and I will be your mentor. (laughs) That's Amazing. amazing.
0: Congratulations yeah, to you both, yeah. and thank you so much for all the work that you've done, that you're doing. So it's been it's been wonderful, another wonderful conversation. Thank you so much to our guests, uh, Alicia and Tida. Um, tune in next time as we have a bit of a family affair and catch up with voice and dialect coach Hazel Holder and producer Alison Holder. Um, amazing creators in their own right who also happen to be siblings. So we'll see how that goes. Um, we're very much looking forward to that conversation. Catch us fortnightly. Episodes will be available everywhere you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. And don't forget to follow ETT on ETT Tweet on Twitter and at English Touring Theatre on Instagram. We'll see you next time.